Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 211, recorded December 2nd, 2020. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Ockett. And we have a special guest, Yay. Matthew Feiger. Welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you here. You've been over on Talk Python before, right? So yeah. Talking about some cool um, high energy physics and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I looked that up last night just to try and remind myself. That was uh, episode one forty four. I was I was on with my uh, colleagues Michaela Pagnini and Michael Kagan to talk with you about machine machine learning applications at the LHC. Yeah, and you do stuff over with CERN at the Large Hadron Collider and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and so there I split my time between working on the Atlas experiment and. Uh, working as a software researcher at the Institute for Research and Innovation and Software for High Energy Physics, uh, IRIS-HEP. And so like on Atlas, Atlas is this like huge five-story tall uh, particle detector that lives 100 meters underground at CERN's Large Hadron Collider that's just outside beautiful Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, And so there I work with a few thousand of my closest colleagues and friends to try and look for uh, evidence of new physics and uh, make precision measurements of physics we do know about. Um, and then my Iris Hep work is kind of focused on working in an interdisciplinary and inter-experimental team to try and uh, improve the necessary cyber infrastructure and software for us to be able to use in upcoming runs of the high lum- of the uh, the Large Hadron Collider and in what we call like a high luminosity run, which is going to be ha- have way you guys more ever turned it up to normal. full power? Have you turned uh, it up to full power yet? No. So yeah, the design luminosity or the design energy of the LHC is uh, at something called 14 tera electron volts, 14 TeV. And we've been running mm-hmm. uh, intentionally at a lower operating energy for the last couple of years at uh, just a little bit below that. But in the late so 2020s, you don't put a black we're going to suck the entire earth into it and, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> Uh, you know, no no experimental evidence of black hole creation yet, but it, kind of the cool thing is that if we even did make a black hole at the LHC uh, due to something called Hawking radiation, it would evaporate well before it could actually ever do anything interesting gravitationally. But yeah, that's uh, good it's really exciting. Really <laughs> no, it's, exciting but I, I'm joking, but it's such a cool place, such a cool technology. I mean, that's right out of the, the edge of physics these days. It's, it's, and the technology side is neat, too. Yeah, no, it's super fun. Cool. Well, welcome over to Python Bytes. Yeah, it's great to be here. So I, yeah, it's great to have you. Thanks for coming. And uh, Brian, I think let's let's start with another one of my favorite topics: farms. I love farming. I, you know, you you see the bumper sticker: no farms, no food. I like food a lot, so <laughs> yeah. I love farms. No, no, yeah. but the farm stack. We've heard yes. the lamp stack, other stacks. Like lamp is not as useful as farm, right? Farm <laughs> sounds more useful. So tell us about farm. So uh, Aaron Bassett, he's um, I. I'm not sure. I think he's a, one of the, the spokespeople for Mongo or something, mm-hmm. like advocate or something like that. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, he's um, he's doing. Uh, he he wrote this article, but uh, they've also done. I think they've, there's been some some talks given, but this is this is a nice article. It's a uh, called introducing farm stack, which is fast API, React, and MongoDB. Um, so the uh, I really actually appreciated the the article and the the code with it because um there's a github a uh, little github to do crud app that they've put together um and it uh the article describes basically all of the pieces of the the application um using it like a little to do app but with fast api you've got this is interactive um interactive documentation mode where you can interact with the uh, application just almost immediately you don't have to really do much 
to put it all together. And and then uh, for all your endpoints, you can actually interact with them, send send data, do queries. Um, and there's a little animated GIF to show how how that's done. Um, but the article then you know goes through and says you know basically how how the endpoints and routes get hooked up, um, and then uses uh, UV acorn uh, to set up an async event loop and get that going. Um, shows how easy it is to connect to a database. And then um, defining models with and how easy it is to set up a schema um, goes through uh, um, and then kind of hooks up, doc, talks through the code discussion of you, you do have to write code for the endpoints and and really how easy those are with all of these these pieces. Um, the React application is um, it's kind of a minimal app, React application. I'm not sure why they kind of included that, but it's kind of a neat addition. There's a, a React application that's running that just sort of shows some of the interaction with the uh, the CRUD app, and it gets updated while you know while you're changing things through the uh, interactive API. And I just I like the dem- demonstration of uh, working through working with an API and working through um, changing things and seeing it show up, having a, a, a like a, a React app at the other end. It's kind of a fun way to uh, kind of experiment with an API. This is a really neat thing. And the, one of the other major stacks that's been used around Mongo is the mean stack. And the farm stack is way nicer than the mean stack, not just because it uses Python and not JavaScript. But there's some interesting things here. One of the examples is, is actually kind of blowing my mind in that it's an if statement using the walrus operator awaiting an asynchronous call in a in an API method. Like the walrus operator and the async the await keyword i've never seen those together and it's kind of like uh it's inspiring it's nice it's good it, yeah it's yeah such succinct code as well it's super nice i mean it uses fast api which is fantastic it's using uh motor which is mongodb's officially supported python async library because you need an async capable library in order to do things against mongodb you know this actually comes from the developer blog at mongodb uh, there also are some ORM-like things, some ODMs, op- object document mapper stuff that also supports async and await from MongoDB. So if you're more in the ORM style, you might check that out. But other than that, this looks pretty neat to me. Yeah. Yeah, and I I, I do know that a lot of people use the ORMs, but I like I appreciated the example without an ORM uh, for people because you throw an ORM example in there, and then people that don't use that particular one get lost. So yeah, Matthew, do you guys do anything with MongoDB? Any of these kind of things? Fast API. Uh, yeah, I have some friends that do. I personally myself am um, not too versed in Mongo, but uh, I, you know, I've heard it on the show and uh, many, many times elsewhere. So this is, I think, also just uh, just kind of paging through the article as Ryan was talking about. It is pretty impressive. So it's really concise. It's like, here's your four lines to completely implement the API. Yeah. Type of things, <laughs> right? Asynchronous, fast, like all the cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, there was an example, a, a case study of... MongoDB you being used at the Large Hadron Collider, but that was many years ago, and I don't know if it still is. So it's I, I've completely forgotten where that is. Yeah, but I don't know. yeah, yeah, cool, cool. So next thing I want to talk about another programming language. Last time Brian, I went on and on, maybe the time before, two times ago, about .NET and C Sharp because yeah. Anthony Shaw had had done that work on Pigeon to get Python to run on .NET, and we're like, well, why are we talking about C Sharp on this project, right, on this podcast? Well, I want to talk about something even more advanced, AppleScript. <laughs> <laughs> wow, cutting edge. Yes, it's like the CMD shell script of Apple. 
It's I don't have you ever programmed an Apple script? It's painful. No, I've not. <laughs> it's like you say like tell this application that oh, no. to like make a command. Oh, it's it's bad news bears. Let me tell you. <laughs> so <laughs> so what I've come across is this thing called Pi Apple Script. Now this is not brand new, but it's brand new to me. And there's a lot of talk about Macs and people maybe getting new Macs. So I thought I would say, hey, look, here's a cool way to automate your Mac or you know Macs within your company or whatever with Python instead of this dreaded NS Apple Script. Okay. Right. So so basically, it's a Python wrapper around NS Apple Script, allowing Python scripts or applications to communicate with Apple Script and Apple scriptable applications. So apps for which they basically implement Apple Script and let you do that. So scripts get compiled either from source or they can be loaded from disk. Um, they have these, some of these ideas are from Apple Script. The standard run handler and user-defined handlers can be invoked with or without arguments. Uh, they're automatically converted. The responses to and from Apple Script are automatically converted either from Apple Script to Python types like Python string versus Apple Script one or vice versa, right? So you don't have to do the type coercion, which is cool. And they're persistent. So you can call your handle multiple times and it retains its state like Apple Script would. And it also has uh, no dependency on the legacy Apple Script library or the so-called flawed scripting bridge framework, which is limited to OSA script executables. So that's pretty cool. If, if you want to automate things on your Mac, well, you obviously could use Bash. But if you're talking to some kind of application that implements one of these scripts. Like, for example, you want to tell this other application to grab something out of the clipboard and then tell it to do something or something like that, right? Like, you couldn't reasonably do that with Bash, right? Once it starts up, you kind of want to go back and forth with it. So it sounds like AppleScript might be the thing to do. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, not, not not a whole lot to it. Like, if you've got a script, your, 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 um, your Apple Mac OS stuff, do it with Python. You don't have to do it with uh, that AppleScript stuff. No, it's neat. Yeah. Yeah. So Matthew, you, you probably brought some something to do with physics, data science, I'm guessing. What's your first uh, one here? Yeah, a bit. So we we currently live in this like really nice age of having awesome CI services uh, and all these really nice metrics for all your GitHub projects and everything. So uh, you know, if you're I'm thinking of like coverage. So if you're, you know, using PyTest and, and uh, you know, making sure that you're reporting your coverage, you have all these really great services to also track your coverage and report that in nice shiny badge. But let's say you're developing some tool or some library and you have some, uh, some sort of performance uh, metric that you care about, let's say like how fast some, uh, some, the speed of evaluation for certain expensive functions, and you actually want to try and like track that through the entire history of your code base. And that's not something that's like traditionally very super easy to do. Uh, so recently, I was really happy to find. Something so, like, called, if you're making changes, so if you're going to be adding some feature or whatever, you are refactoring it so it's easier to write, but you're not sure if that makes it faster or slower. This would sort of give you that information from week to week or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So you might like. Oh, you, cool. you might go ahead and, and say like, okay, well, you know, I have like some uh, some tests that make sure that this function evaluates in under some period of time if it's an expensive function uh, some, for your test, but. Let's say you actually want to like track uh, across like different um, different parameterizations how that function actually is eval is being performing and evaluating it in your whole code base. So uh, I've recently found this super cool tool written in Python called uh, Airspeed Velocity. Uh, and so from the docs, uh, ASV Airspeed Velocity is a tool for benchmarking Python packages over their lifetime. 
So it uh, deals with runtime, memory consumption, and uh, even custom compute values. Uh, and the results are then displayed in a super nice web uh, front end that's interactive and basically just requires like static web page uh, hosting. Uh, so um, it's it's pretty impressive. And just if you click on the docs, uh, you can see that's developed by a community of people, but um, led by uh, Michael uh, Dorgatboom. I'm probably getting your, your name wrong. Very sorry. And uh, Polly uh, Burton. Uh, but if yeah, you look the at guy, some... He's the guy that who was behind uh, Pi Oxidizer at, at Mozilla. I oh, believe. really? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I think that's, so. that's a super yeah, cool project. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I mean, if you look at the other people that are on the contributor list, you can you know spot a, a lot of uh, names that are uh, common in the SciPy and Jupyter ecosystem. So it's uh, you already know that this is a, a nice community built tool. And then also uh, as kind of some example cases, they give uh, current projects that are using it, like NumPy and SciPy and AstroPy. So pretty well established projects. And just as kind of like an example. Uh, if you click on like the SciPy project and go to the interpolate function there, you can um, you can just kind of look at a very nice visualization of the actual evaluation uh, in time on the vertical axis across a whole bunch of parameterizations, such as like CPython version and number of samples that are being oh, yeah. run. Uh, and you can see this for the entire lifetime of the code base, and you can zoom in on any section just with the mouse. And something I think that is super, super cool is if, you, if you're looking at the visualization of the plot and you see that, oh, there's like one commit where all of a sudden things go funky and the evaluation time just jumps up, you can just click on that node and it immediately opens up to that commit in GitHub, which is, I think, super awesome that you don't have to go and like search through your commit history to figure out what, like where that yeah. corresponds to. It's just boom right there. I'm looking, it shows the, the SHA from GitHub. Yeah. The, 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 the unique identifier of the the commit that's crazy yeah so wow yeah so i've i've you know a project that i'm working on where we've been interested in trying to have the sort of like metric tracking for some of our for some of our work so this is something that i'm actively kind of uh looking at how we might be able to deploy this for one of my projects with my co-authors uh but it's openly developed on github it's up on pypi pipi as well so just pip install asv uh and then i think something that's kind of very cute and very kind of Pythonic is that uh, if you when you go to the reporting dashboard for the different libraries that you're actually benchmarking, it will uh, up at the top say the airspeed velocity of an unladen X. So the airspeed velocity <laughs> of an unladen like NumPy or an unla- unladen SciPy. So you know keeping very true to the uh, you know Python's roots there. <laughs> uh, there's some Monty Python uh, the the show Zen in there for sure. Exactly. Yeah. This is impressive. I mean, Brian, how do you see this fitting into like testing and stuff? I actually love this. I uh, I could use this right away. There's um there's lots of well, a lot of times it's it's not um yeah performance of performance is always something we care about and and benchmarking systems um and you know testing uh it's always it's something you forget about sometimes you're like r- running um running stuff and it still works but like over time things slow down and it's good to mm-hmm. good to know that. Yeah, and it. if this could just be automatic and just part of your CI, you just go back and see the updates. That'd be very cool. Definitely. Yeah. I, I don't think that this is something that at the moment, and I'm happy to be corrected about this, I don't think at the <laughs> moment there is some way that this is currently being um, given as like a CI service, but I think that this is something right. that you could like set up and run for yourself pretty easily. Yeah, you could probably plug it in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But you could probably do some kind of webhook when when there's a check-in 
automatically kick it off and then save a result, right? You could just hook into the GitHub Actions and then have yeah, it just call exactly. you back and, and start your, you know, let's take a take a, a record of this or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, very and cool. I, this is a great idea. Yeah, something else that I'm, I haven't really investigated yet, but that I'm looking into is if this can also be used uh, to do like GPU benchmarking. So like, let's say you have a library that, you know, also that is going to be, uh, you can transparently uh, use the APIs to transparently move from CPU to GPU, like you have something like Jax or TensorFlow or PyTorch, then this might be kind of a nice way uh, if it's uh, if it's based on those to be able to like benchmark your GPU performance as well. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things you might not test, right? If it could run yeah. either way, you might just run it on your machine, whichever one of those it is, and forget to try the other style, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I don't think there's yeah. too many CI services that are going to, you know, generously give you some like really nice GPUs to be <laughs> doing benchmarking on. Yeah, that's for sure. For sure. All right. Now for the before we move on to the next item, let me tell you about our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Tech Meme, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast. They've been for two years recording episodes every single day. And so they're Silicon Valley's favorite tech news podcast. And you can get them daily, 15 to 20 minutes exactly by 5 p.m. Eastern, all the tech news you want, right? But it's not just headlines, much like Python Bytes, actually. It's a very similar show, but for the broader tech industry. You could have a robot read the headlines or just flip through them, but it has the context and the analysis all around it. So it's like tech news as a service, if you will. So the folks over at TechMeme, they're online all day reading to catch you up and just search your podcast app for The Ride Home and Ride Home and subscribe to the TechMeme ride home podcast or just visit pythonbytes.fm slash ride to subscribe i have a theory a hypothesis about uh this i think that probably actually be a ton of work to put together a show daily on a time like that but it's great that they're doing it Uh, do you have any other hypotheses brian yes Uh, my (laughs) hypothesis is that um, there's not enough examples out in the world uh, of how people are using hypothesis in the field in in real world applications (laughs) so um yep so I'm I'm excited that uh, Parsec put it together. So Parsec. Well, let's let's take a real quick step back, just for people who don't know, uh, what is Hypothesis? Oh, okay, right. Hypothesis is a testing framework. Well, it's not really. It attaches to other testing frameworks, so you can use it with Unit Test or PyTest. You probably should use it with PyTest. Uh, but it it's a it's a way instead of writing a declarative single test or test case, um, you can. It's a, a property based testing, so you describe. Um, kind of it's it's not like i expect one plus two equals three uh, i it's i expect if i add two integers um the and they're both positive that the result is going to be greater than both of them or you know you you have like these yeah. properties that you describe what the answer is and there's a there's a uh the examples that hypothesis and other you know tutorials on how to use hypothesis um have given are more of these like A plus B sort of things. They're simplistic things. And I and I do, I do see a lot of value in hypothesis, and I know a lot of people are using it, but there haven't been a lot of good descriptions for really how it's being used, how, like a real-world example of how it's being used, because um, I'm, I'm probably not going to... to I'm, I don't have those little tiny algorithm things. I've got big chunks of stuff, and, um, and hypothesis does have to run the test many times. So how do you do this effectively on a large project? So I love seeing this article. So um, Parsec is a is a um, it's a client side encrypted file sharing service. I'd never heard of them before this this blog, but 
Sounds cool. It's cool. They describe themselves as the zero trust file sharing service like Dropbox, where it's it's end-to-end encryption for Dropbox. So yeah. you, you could share the files, but it only matters if you actually have the key, right? Right. Um, actually, I have no idea. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I, I suspect so, yeah. It, it um, sounds like a cool service, actually. It sounds pretty neat, but they, so they describe what kind of what they're doing there does, and some of the problems. It's a, it's a large um, four-year-old asynchronous Python project. And, and then they describe this uh, uh, raid uh, redundancy algorithm that they need. It's fairly complex with a bunch of servers and stuff, a bunch of data stores going on. And what they need to test is they need to check things like, um, if the blocks can be split into chunks and if the blocks can be rebuilt from the chunks that were split up before. And then if you can rebuild them, if you've got missing chunks and, and so this, this all sounds fairly, you know, yeah, I can understand how you could try to test that, but there's a lot of variables in there. How big is the chunk size? How many chunks, how much stuff should be missing? Um, and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and that then they're, they're thinking, yeah, hypothesis would be good for that. Um, they do the normal tutorials talk about a, um, a stateless way to, to test with hypothesis, but they're saying that for them, the stateful, uh, method that is supported is very useful uh, because they're an asynchronous system and they describe how to do that. It's a, actually a fairly complex description and it, it's, um, it's kind of a lot to get through, but it's neat that the power's there. So, um, it does you know, walks through how they, how, exactly how they set up a test like this. And this is something I think the, uh, the testing community of considering hypothesis has been missing. So this is great. Um, yeah. they, they end with a, uh, some recommendations, which, um, I, it's, it's great. So the recommendation is for parts of your system that, uh, which parts should you throw hypothesis at? That's so, a really good question. Cause it, you don't want to throw yeah. it at everything. Right, because um, there is some expense to set it up and also to run everything. So they they describe it as if you're um, if the piece you're testing is kind of an encoder decoder thing, like theirs is, you're splitting things into chunks and then rebuilding things. Um, the it's a hypothesis is a no brainer for that because you can you can compare is the is my input the same as the uh, in, encoded then decoded output? Um, yeah. The the other case is if you have a simple oracle. Simple Oracle, like it's simple to test the answer, but it's complex to come up with the answer. Um, I'm not sure how what that is, but in the case, you know, some of the cases are, um, you know, I've got a complex system and and I just, there's properties about the output that are easy to describe. Uh, the other one is, uh, yeah, it's, I guess similar is if it's hard to compute, but easy to check. Yeah. Um, well, one example that just jumps out at me right away is anytime you have a file format, I'm going to save this thing be able to save and load these files, right? Because all you got to do is load up a whole bunch of random data, say save, load, is it the same? If it's not, yeah. <laughs> that's a problem. Yeah. 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 Right. And actually, um, I, I have talked with some people that uh, that have thrown this at um, uh, some of the, the standard library um, uh, modules just on the side yeah. to test uh, because there's a lot of standard library stuff that's uh, like kind of encoding, decoding sort of thing or can two-way conversions. Yeah, cool. Yeah, this is super nice. I'm I'm gonna have to really dig into this article in more detail. I remember the first time I like learned about hypothesis was uh, uh, when one of the core devs gave a talk at Pi uh, at SciPy 2019, and it just blew my mind then. And 
So this is so cool to see this like very, very interesting application here. Yeah. 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 It seems like there's a lot of uses in data science. Data science seems tough to test like that scientific computation <laughs> side because slight variations, you might not get perfect equality, but exactly. it's close yeah. enough, right? It's like, well, it's off, but it's like, you know, 10 to the negative 10th or something off, right? That doesn't actually matter, but the equality fails. Yeah. Yeah. You end up using NumPy's, uh, you know, uh, uh, NumPy's approximation comparison schemes quite a bit in your in your uh, yeah in your I, Pi test. I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Very cool. All right, next one, Brian. I told you about um, last time. I talked about. I'm still waiting on my Mac Mini. Right. I, yes. I ordered the Apple the M1 Mac Mini maxed out, and I'm a little bit jealous. My my daughter is getting a new Mac Mini. She doesn't or Mac um, Air. She doesn't know it about. But it's supposed to show up tomorrow, and mine's still weeks away, and I don't think that that's very fair. Right. But if you are an organization that depends on cloud computing, and you know what organizations don't these days, right? They almost all do. It was just announced at reInvent that AWS is going to be offering Mac instances as a type of VM. So until now, you've been able to get Windows, Linux. That's it. So for all those people out there who are offering some kind of iOS app, even if they're not like a Mac shop, they still have to have Macs around because you can't compile and sign your IPA, your Mac, whatever iPhone app format is. You can't create those without a Mac. So there's all these Macs that are around for like continuous you know, CI, CD for checking those things and, and whatnot. So now you can go to AWS and say, I'll take a Mac mini, please. That's pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah. So you can do your tests up there and they don't have M1 yet. Those are the Intel ones, but uh, the M1 chips are coming later. So you'll be able to do it. What's interesting about this offering from AWS as is basically any cloud service, you would imagine it's a VM, right? But these, you, when you say, I want one of these, you actually get a dedicated Mac mini. That's, you get pure hardware. <laughs> well, that's why you can't get yours because Amazon bought them all. <laughs> they did. They had a huge truck full of them. Well, they bought the Intel one. So those were on sale, I bet anyway. <laughs> but no, they have um, some interesting, what do they call it? Nitro. I think they call it their Nitro service or something like that, which allows them to virtualize actual real hardware. So hmm. this is pretty neat. You can sign up. The billing is interesting. You have to pay for at least one day's worth if you get it, which I think is like $24. If you're going to run it continuously all the time, this is one pricey sucker. Like the, the, the Mac Mini you can get now is... $700. This is $770 a month. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so if, if what you need is like a couple of Mac minis, you're probably, and you need them on all the time, you're probably better off just buying a few and sticking them in a closet, especially uh, but, the, the M1s. But if you just need one on demand every now and then, or you need to burst into them or something like that, that could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, you're back old school and you only release like once every three months. <laughs> well, there was uh, some, some conversations like, well, if your data is already stored in S3 and you have like huge quantity of data and what you need to run is actually running like some video processing on the Mac, you could do it by the data instead of transferring that kind of stuff. Things like that might be uh, interesting. I, I don't know. Uh, I would go ahead and throw out there also that this is all interesting. I have links to this kind of stuff and whatnot, like the blog post announcing it and so on. But there's also this thing called Mac Stadium. And if you look at Mac Stadium, it's pretty interesting. You can go over there and say, give me a dedicated bare mini, a bare metal Mac mini in their data center, $60 a month. Hmm. So, yeah. so you can actually get um, like a decent one 
for a decent price over there. So if you just want one running all the time, it might be good. But the thing is, if you're already like deeply integrated to AWS, maybe maybe this is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew, seems, is there anything you... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, this seems pretty interesting. Um, I mean, I know one of the reasons that I love using GitHub Actions and Azure Pipelines is the ability to be able to get access to uh, Mac uh, VMs for, for builds. But if you... I could also see this being really interesting and useful if you have like some very huge uh, application or some like very large stack that you want to be able to be able to do CI or, uh, or tests on that this could be really, really nice, uh, especially if you don't just want to be like, you know, pounding and destroying like one, one Mac over and over and over again. Uh, this, yeah, yeah. this is nice, especially if you have a distributed team. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which uh, every team is basically a distributed team. Yeah. Right yeah. Now. Welcome to 2020. Yeah, the, <laughs> one thing that's interesting about this is you can literally press a button or even just through the AWS, probably the Bodo API, you can just make a new Mac instantly. Like within seconds, you can have a clean pre-configured Mac. You can create AMIs, the Amazon machine uh, machine image, which are like I install a bunch of stuff and get it set up and then like save it so I can respawn new machines from it. Those are pretty interesting options that just having a Mac mini in the closet, you know, push a button, make a brand new one try this, throw it away, make it a different way, throw it away. Like There, there are some use cases here that could be interesting. That yeah, said, definitely. I won't be using it. <laughs> I'm just going to buy a Mac Mini if I can ever get it. All right, Matthew, what's this last one you got for us? Yeah, I don't have any clever transition, but um, all right. So maybe, <laughs> I don't know about you, but uh, I end up having to deal with a lot of JSON uh, serializations of different statistical models and different, uh, and, you know, sometimes also getting, you know, CSVs of different data sets that I want to be doing analysis on. And, you know, your first instinct might just be to say, okay, I'm just going to open this up uh, in Pandas and start to get to work on it. But if you kind of are used and comfortable to working in the uh, Linux command line uh, kind of ecosystem of data tools, you might be itching a little bit and want to kind of just, you know, peek inside at the command line level and kind of get to work there. And so in that case, you might be really interested in this uh, tool called Visidata. Uh, so Visidata is written okay, all this, in Python. This is blowing my mind, actually. Yeah, like some of these pictures. Like when I saw this, oh my, my jaw was kind of on the floor. Um, so we'll, I'm, we'll make sure that this is linked in the show notes because it has uh, some really cool videos. But so... From the docs, uh, so it's Visidata is described as data science without the drudgery. So it's an interactive multi-tool for tab- tabular data, uh, combines clarity of spreadsheets with efficiencies of being at the terminal and also, you know, the power of Python 3 all in a really lightweight utility that can handle millions of rows with, rows with ease. I can attest to that personally. I've opened up like four gigabyte uh, CSV files before and it just, you know, drops right in and starts asynchronously loading like a champ. It's uh, in addition to that, it supports kind of a really astounding number of file formats that it supports. Currently on the website, it says it supports 42 different file formats. So it you know supports things that you would expect, like um, CSV and JSON, but then it also supports things like Jira, uh, I guess like whatever Jira uses for their sort yeah. of like tabular uh, stuff. It also can like read my MySQL. And I guess it can also even deal with PNG, the, the image file format, which I was, uh, you know, impressed by. Uh, so this is all openly developed. Because the output is a terminal, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not a thing, like text. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is all openly developed on GitHub by uh, a guy named uh, Saul Pawson, I think. Uh, and um, if you go to the, if you go to the Visidata website, uh, it also has... Um, 
uh, plenty of links to live demos of him doing kind of interactive examples of visualizations. There's one uh, lightning talk that he's given at, uh, I think, Pi Cascades 2018 or something like that, where he's able to just call up a CSV file of, um, of like 311 complaints in New York City and then through the through using Visitdata, just kind of hone down onto certain boroughs and then be able to do uh, uh, filter on um, on different complaint types to be able to basically find complaints about rodents and then filter on rat complaints and then plot that inside of Visitdata still all in the terminal to basically make a, a visualization of like rodent distribution in the New York City boroughs. So I thought that was you know quite amusing and re- uh, really cool. Um, it's also, you know, this is a, a Python application, so you might not want to, you know, continuously install this in every single virtual environment you make. Um, so, I mean, it is up on PyPI, so you can just do pip install visitdata. But since it's an application, you probably might also want it just kind of as a generic uh, tool on your machine. So it's distributed through a lot of, uh, you know, nice uh, common package managers. So if you're on Linux, they've got it on apt, uh, as well as uh, things like uh, NX and GUIX. Um, but I, I didn't see it on Yum. So if you're on Fedora or CentOS, you might be a little bit out of luck, you might have to do it manually. Uh, it's, of course, on Homebrew, uh, and even Conda Forge. And it's not listed there. But um, uh, a very, very cool tool that's been featured on the show before, which is PipX uh, by uh, Chad yeah, Smith. PipX is awesome. It's so yeah. good. I love it. Uh, I tested this last night. I just fired up a um, a Python three eight Docker uh, Docker container, and uh, you know went ahead and installed pipx, and then used pipx to install Visidata, and was able to drop right into Visidata as expected. So it's a uh, very very cool, and uh, just the the power that you can have with it, I think, is worth checking out for anybody who is doing data analysis with tabular data. This is super cool. I love when people build these tools that are kind of. You don't really expect them to be so powerful. And you talked about how you just dropped in and grabbed some random data and started answering questions. And uh, that's super neat. Yeah. Yeah the, yeah. the number of inputs and because it's open source and because of all the other examples of, of data types, I think even if you have a different data type, it shouldn't be too hard to, uh, to, to modify this to handle something different. I do notice I'm excited about it. It does have PCAP files for packet capture. These are for um, communication uh, packets. That's I'm talking we, to all your devices and all your hardware at your we, company, right? Well, this is like even like Wi-Fi packets and cellular packets. Uh, that's how we debug those. So nice. Uh, it's very cool. Yeah, yeah, very cool. And PipX is great. Uh, I install a bunch of apps like Glances, which is a fantastic like visualize the state, you know, like top, but way, way better. And then HCPy, which is great for it's a better, but much, much better curl. But the most important thing I install that way is uh, a pie joke so now i can type <laughs> pie joke on my command line and we're always right there <laughs> so but, speaking of which uh move on to our extras that's that's our all of our main topics brian you got anything this week oh i did i was i haven't dropped them in where'd my extras go yeah, um, yeah well <laughs> got it. i just wanted to bring up that uh the um uh pycon 2021 is going to be virtual and uh there's a website up um, it's us.pycon.org slash 2021. Um, and uh, there's not a lot there yet, but you can check out what's going to ha- happen. I'm. It's not surprising that this they're, they have to start planning it, and they may as well plan it as a virtual event. Um, I was kind of hoping that we would have live, but I understand. So. Yeah, I'm, man, PyCon is my geek holiday. I love, it's both work, but it's also just such a nice getaway to connect with everybody 
you, everyone else we know from the community, um, listeners, I'm going to miss not having it. Yeah. I'm Ma- glad. Matthew, do you attend? Sorry, Brian. No, it's good that they, they're, I always check whenever they announce the date to make sure it doesn't overlap Mother's Day. And, uh, oh, yeah. Does, does that's not this that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I have unfortunately not uh, attended um, uh, PyCon yet in, uh, in person or, I mean, well, it was canceled this year. So maybe maybe I'll attend this year remote, but um, I, I'm yeah. a regular attendee of uh, the SciPy conference, which uh, this, so this past year, SciPy 2020 was moved online. And I thought that the organizers did a fantastic job of actually running it online while still, you know, keeping kind of that SciPy community feel. So that was helped a lot also by, uh, you know, plenty of bad puns. So uh, I think that might might be something that still comes through for uh, PyCon 2021, maybe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the live listeners, Mohammed, said, uh, ask if it's going to cost money or if it's going to be free this year to attend. Did you notice anything, Brian? I haven't uh, looked. I'm looking yeah. around and I don't know that it costs anything. It's from what I can tell. I don't see any pricing. What I saw was sponsor information to get sponsors to sign up uh to be part of whatever they're doing there but i i can't tell yeah not somebody sure. else throw it in the chat or, or put it into the you know visit pythonbuys.fm slash 211 and put it in the comments down there all right i got a couple uh here first of all we're trying out live streaming here and i think it's going pretty well it seems like uh it's working out there's a bunch of people watching so if you want to get notified and we happen to keep doing this just visit pythonbuys.fm slash youtube and it should have like the scheduled upcoming live stream. You can like get notified there. So we'll maybe we'll keep doing this. It's been fun. Um, thanks for everyone out there who's watching right now. And in addition to PyCon, which you just announced or mentioned the announcement of, that is the main way that the PSF is funded. But they're also doing a dedicated offering sort of um, fundraiser thing with six companies to help raise some money for the PSF and talk Python training is being part of that. And 50% of the revenue of a certain set of our courses that are sold during the month of December goes directly to the PSF and people who buy those courses through the PSF fundraiser also get like 20% of a discount. So uh, there's a link in the show notes for people to take some of our courses and donate to the PSF. If you'd rather just directly donate, that's fine. But if you're looking to get some of our courses anyway, you can do it this way and support the PSF. They're hoping to raise $60,000. You know, hopefully we can do that for them and we'll see. And Brian, you announced big PyCon. I'll, another thing that got announced is small PyCon, Pi Cascades, Cascades being the mountain range that connects Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver. And traditionally this conference is cycled between those three cities. I don't even remember anymore what where it's supposed to be this year. I think it's supposed to go back to Vancouver, but it's not going to Vancouver because nobody's going anywhere. So Pi Cascades is online and those do cost money. It's $10 for students, $20 for individuals and $50 for professionals to support that conference. But I'll link to that one uh, since that's one of our local conferences, if you will. Yeah, they're trying to push. They often push what's going on, what kind of uh, try new things. So it's a neat conference. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy yeah. my time there as well. All right, Matthew, what do you got for us? Anything else you want to get a shout out to? Yeah, just uh, just a few items. Uh, so Advent of Code 2020 is uh, started now. It's day two, but uh, there's still plenty of time to get involved with that if you want to. And for those of you who might not know, Advent of Code is just uh, an annual uh, kind of coding challenge that takes place every December. Uh, it's just basically 25 days of like fun and interesting uh, programming challenges. So it's a uh, 
always a great opportunity to try and brush up on your Python and maybe uh, learn about some interesting, uh, uh, you know, collections that you might not have known about uh, in the standard library. Um, so that's going on right now, worth checking out, I think. Um, and then as I'm going to sneak in some very small uh, physics-related follow-up to uh, Python Bytes episode 205, uh, in which uh, awkward arrays were talked about. Um, so the lead developer of awkward arrays is uh, my friend and colleague, Jim Pavarsky, who uh, is one of my scikit-hep um, co-collaborators, as well as uh, also a member of IrisEp. And uh, as of today, which is we're recording December 2nd, uh, Awkward v1.0 is a, a release candidate is up on PyPI. So by the time that this goes live, uh, if you just do pip install Awkward, you should get Awkward 1.0 releases instead of having to do the... No uh, more Awkward 1? Exactly. No, no more, more Awkward 1, awkward no more Awkward install. 0, oh, man, all that so jazz. so good to have the actual install statement be yeah, Awkward itself. Exactly. So uh, so that's a nice little tidbit. Uh, and I, I, I think that there's some nice links in episode 205 if people want to learn more about Awkward. Uh, but that's kind of yeah. a backbone of of kind of the Pythonic ecosystem for physics right now. Um, and then that's finally, cool. I just want to give uh, some kudos to Python Bytes as well, uh, specifically for making full transcripts of the shows available uh, to view on pythonbytes.fm. Uh, not only is this, I think, like a cool idea in general, but I think this also makes uh, the show more inclusive to the deaf uh, Python community, which is definitely out there. And uh, one of my good friends and co-authors is, uh, is, is deaf and... I know that he definitely appreciates this. So, um, so good job on you guys for being more inclusive yeah, of you. the wider community. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't know anybody was utilizing it. So yeah, yeah that's awesome. Thank you. Uh, it's, I think it's absolutely critical for that because the format is only audio, but a lot of folks have reached out and said they also appreciate it if they're English as a second language and they're, they're not as good with English as well. So yeah, that also helped I think, right. They're like, what, what was I saying again? What a weird word. Awkward array? Why would they talk about that? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, transcripts so yeah, and, yep. and closed captioning is, is just more inclusive for everyone. So, that, so that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. All right. Well, let's wrap it up with a joke, huh, Brian? <laughs> yeah. All right. So you guys, I'm going to need your help here. Uh, I'm going to let, uh, Matthew, I'm going to let you, you pick. Do you want to be Windows or Apple? Uh, I'll be Windows. All right. Brian, you be Apple. So um, okay. the idea is like, the, the title here is how to fix a computer. Any computer. So um, instructions for Windows. Go ahead, yeah. Matthew. So step one, reboot. And then the flowchart goes to, did that fix it? If no, proceed to step two. Step two, format your hard drive and then reinstall Windows. Uh, lose all of your files <laughs> and quietly leap. <laughs> Brian, Apple doesn't have that problem. There's some totally different solution there. Uh, okay, for Apple, it's step one, take it to an Apple store. Did that fix it? If no, proceed to step two. Step two is buy a new Mac. Uh, overdraw your account and quietly weep. <laughs> That's me right now. I I got the <laughs> Linux fix. It's so easy. It's totally like you don't need those things. So you learn to code to C. You learn to code in C You recompile the kernel. You build your own microprocessor out of spare silicon you have laying around. You recompile the kernel again. You switch distros. You recompile the kernel again, but this time using a CPU powered by the refracted refracted light from Saturn. You grow a giant beard, you blame Sun Microsystems, <laughs> you turn your bedroom into a server closet and spend 10 years falling asleep to the sound of whirring fans, you switch distros again, you abandon all hygiene, you write a regular expression that would make any programmers, any other programmers cry blood, you learn to code in Java, you recompile again, but this time while wearing your lucky socks. Did that fix it? No. Proceed to step two. Revert back to using Windows and Mac. 
Ormac quietly weep. <laughs> There's as, really no good outcome here. They, yeah. they all end in quietly weep. As a Linux user for the better part of a decade, I can neither confirm nor deny, uh, you know, how accurate that last part is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they all have their own special angle. It just takes longer to get there with Linux uh, to get to your <laughs> destination, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, that's fun as always. And everyone watching on YouTube, thanks for being here live and everyone listening. Just thank you for listening. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, yeah. Great for the items you brought. Enjoyed them. And Brian, thanks as always, man. Thank you. It's been fun. Yep. yep. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.